What's up, guys? Really grateful you guys are listening to the pod. I would love it if you could take just five seconds to leave a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you might be listening to this. It really goes a long way to spread the message, which would allow me to get better guests to add more value to your life. And if you're one of the special people that have helped spread the word on this podcast, I am deeply appreciative of your support. Enjoy the episode. All right, guys, so if you listen to this podcast, you're probably someone that wants to be productive, to get stuff done, and aspire to be a top performer in any aspect of your life. I discovered Magic Mind, which are these green shots, and I'm gonna show you two ingredients that are really stood out to me. Number one is matcha, which contains a crazy amount of antioxidants and also caffeine, but it doesn't give you the crash that normal coffee would. And the second one is lion's mane's mushroom, which is a nootropic. It helps reduce anxiety, inflammation, helps with learning and memory in general. And what I love about the Magic Mind is that you're not replacing your morning coffee, which we all look forward to on a morning basis, but you're able to replace that third and fourth and fifth coffee that you might not necessarily need. And it's actually hurting you in many ways in terms of your productivity and your energy levels. So if you guys wanna be more productive without the jitters or the crash, I highly recommend you guys to check out Magic Mind. They reached out with an exclusive offer for our listeners where you can go to magicmind.co slash growthminds or you can use the discount code GROWTHMINDS20. That's GROWTHMINDS20. And you can get 20% off your subscription. All right, on to the episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Scientifically proven and studied for decades. Mm. It's like you go into the gym, you bench you overhead press, you squat, you deadlift, maybe a couple of accessories, like some pull-ups and you're, you're gonna, you're gonna build a great body. It's very Mm. simple. It's a simple linear progression, like three sets of five. You're doing an A day and a B day. It's like, this has been, you know, codified in, uh, in in kinesthesiology for years. It's not crazy. Um, it really just comes down to, Awesome, man. Well, Thomas, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really excited to have you on here. Thank you for inviting me on the show. How you doing? Good, good. I, um, I know we, we haven't connected before, but I initially found your work through Skillshare, I believe. You mm. got various different uh, courses on there around productivity. And uh, I just noticed like it stood out for me amongst a lot of the other typical productivity videos. And one, I think it was just like the, 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 the quality of the video itself, uh, and the amount of information that you were, you were providing. It was, uh, it's, I think it's been like two or three years since I've been kind of following your work, 
around that. So yeah, really excited to get in and, and talk about productivity, goals, habits, all of these things. I think February is probably a good time to talk about this stuff because, you know, as the <laughs> uh, slump of New Year's resolutions are starting to die off, I think this yeah. will just kind of like give people that burst of, you know, new new energy to get them, keep them going. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I know that you initially started talking about your, um, uh, was it College Info Geeks that you were running where you were talking about more studying habits and stuff like that? Is that kind of how you started your content creation process? Yep, that's exactly how I started. So I've got a website still live, collegeinfogeek.com. And I started that in my freshman year of college. Uh, and I actually started it because I got rejected when I applied to write for a different blog. And then uh, ironically became friends with the people who ran that blog later down the road. They did a lot of promotion for me. So it was like, it was all mm. good. And I'm kind of glad that I got the chance to do things myself. But yeah, um, for a bit of background, I went to college in 2009, which was prime financial uh, crash time, if people remember mm. that. A lot of people were losing their jobs. So I'm going into college kind of insulated from the meltdown since I'm going into college at that time. But there was definitely like this palpable feeling among my graduating class that the world's different now. It's way more competitive. And my response to that was to immerse myself in learning as much as I could about how to succeed in college and, uh, you know, just get the most of the experience. So in doing that, I was like, well, why not write about what I'm learning? And if I can't write on this blog over here that I like, I'm just going to start my own. Got it. So you, this was like your first year of college. You, you've already mm -hmm. started to blog and it was mostly just around how you can study better, how you can be more productive when you're in school or in college specifically to, was it focused on a specific topic or was it just in general around studying and learning? I would say it was focused on everything related to college, but studying, to be honest. <laughs> okay. So, you know, today um, people know me as the guy who made a lot of study content. And I actually did that after I graduated. Uh, and the reason for that is when I was in college, I didn't really care that much about my classes. Uh, you know, and to, to put this out there, I majored in business. So it's not like my <laughs> classwork was that tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I had a lot of friends who were in computer engineering and I'm like, oh, how's those differential equations treating you over there? I just got my little stats over here and <laughs> just doing double entry bookkeeping easy. Um, yeah. So what I really focused on in college was how do I get the most out of everything beyond the classroom? Because uh, I felt, and I think that this is correct even today, that the classwork is almost like the bottom priority when you go to college. Uh, and this depends on the major, like if you're going for pre-med or something, it's different. But uh, for, you know, for a business major, I felt that the on-campus jobs that gave me technical skills and soft skills, along with the opportunities for volunteering and um, extracurricular clubs and events, things like that, uh, and the connections I made through those were more rewarding than the actual classwork. And then, mm. you know, me being just a very exploratory person, I, I learn what I want to learn, however I want to learn it. So I don't necessarily need a class for it. So given that focus of mine personally, um, that kind of crept through my writing. And when I was in school, those three years I was blogging, almost everything was about entrepreneurship, career success, health, like basically just life optimization away from studying. Uh, and mm. the funny thing is like, I, I got done with college and I had hit this point where the blog was making around $5,000 a month. And so in Iowa money, that's full-time wow. income or that's more than full-time, especially when you got roommates. 
Um, and I, I had wanted to number one, get onto YouTube. And number two, I wanted to beef up my email list. So back then there was this very common tip that you should have like some sort of PDF or like a gift that you get people for download or getting onto your email list. And my thought was, well, I haven't really done a whole lot of study content. Let's make a maybe 5,000 word cheat sheet on all the best study techniques that I know of. Uh, and that accidentally ballooned into a book called 10 steps to earning awesome grades. I still gave it away for free, but it is truly a book. There's a print version people can buy. Um, and that sort of inspired me to also go out and build out like a base of content on my YouTube channel and on the blog about studying. Cause I realized I went through college trying to build this all in one college resource and I never really touched studying. <laughs> so yeah, all the well, study content was done after I was done studying. <laughs> that's hilarious. And well, first of all, so how are you even making $5,000 a month on a blog? Because even blogs that have a decent amount of traffic at that time, it's hard to make money through like Google AdSense for, for, for that amount. So were you doing anything different? Were you selling a product or something else that allowed you to make that? Yeah, it was all through affiliate marketing, actually. And I never ran Google AdSense on my blogs, never had any kind of display ads whatsoever on those sites. Uh, so, you know, for context, I got into blogging right around the time that Pat Flynn was kind of blowing up with smartpassiveincome.com. Yeah. Um, and I think that was very good because my perception of the internet marketing space before Pat was a lot of it was quite slimy. Uh, of course, it's still quite slimy in certain parts today. But uh, I feel like Pat like brought this breath of fresh air with a lot of transparency and the way that he had essentially built up his site uh, with SPI was no ads, no display ads, no pop-ups, no nothing. Uh, but he had really good articles and tutorials and sometimes pitched an affiliate product in there. So that was my like number one inspiration when I got to thinking about how do I monetize my blog. Uh, so I did a few things that worked fairly well, like Amazon affiliates. I had like a really good um, college packing list. And I think for a while we ranked number one for college packing list. So every August we'd bring in quite a lot of income through uh, people just buying stuff for their dorms and textbooks and stuff nice. like that. Uh, but the big one was I was a WordPress nerd. I don't know if I would call myself developer, but my website was built on WordPress. I understood WordPress. So I built a whole tutorial on how to build a WordPress blog. And at the time, at least, um, you know, not to sound a little braggy, but in, if you like Googled how to start a blog or whatever, and you looked at the top articles, mine was by far the most detailed at the time. Mm. Now that's not the case. Now we've got like five hour, you know, amazing tutorials on YouTube to build any kind of site, any kind of tech stack you want. But back then, like if you would Google how to start a blog, everything else that was ranking on page one was like a 2000 word article that just sort of like glossed over the parts. Right. Um, and I was like, I'm going to write a 10,000 word article that shows every single step, every click you make. And so that ranked very highly for a long time. And through my web host affiliate program, I was able to make $5,000 a month. Yeah. I don't know how they do the math there because they give you deals. Cause I did something similar as well with like running the blogs and you, you run through the affiliate payouts of like what someone would pay. And these companies are paying like $70 for each customer that they bring, but they're only charging what, like $2 a month or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy. The, the, the amounts. And so you obviously see all of these blog posts that are coming out around how to set up blog posts and all of them have affiliate links. Um, oh, yeah. so yeah, I, I could totally see how that math works out in that, in that, which sense. it's, it's even crazier. Uh, I think I get 175 a sign up 
And so, and then the average, and that's what people buy it for a year. So I want to say like the average purchase price for that, like the first transaction is something like $80 to $90. Maybe someone adds an add on. Uh, but the thing is the reason the payouts are so high in the web hosting industry is the customer retention is insane. Like people stick mm. around, they don't want to take their websites down. They don't know how to move them. So, you know, I, I don't host my, my main, uh, main websites on HostGator anymore, but I still have smaller websites there. And I've had that account since 2009. Mm. Uh, so they have more than made back. If I happen to go through an affiliate link at the time, they have more than yeah. made back that money. So it all comes down to customer lifetime value or LTV and comparing that against the acquisition cost. And for hosting, you can pay a lot of money because people stick around. Yeah, it's crazy. And like genius about what um, uh, Pat Flynn did with him being transparent with all of his numbers is he would also mm -hmm. have the affiliate links in that post because he knows oh, yeah. there's so many eyeballs because people just want to know how he makes money. He's so transparent with it and he breaks it down expenses, where the income is coming from, how much you made. And, mm -hmm. uh, he's benefiting from that too. So it's such like a genius strategy that he's, uh, he's, he's really pioneered. I think there's so many people doing it now. I think like John Lee Dumas and all those guys. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty smart stuff. Yeah. I want to like talk there's, about there's a bit of strategy there. There is, there is. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we're getting a little off tangent, but, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> this is, this whole thing is just an affiliate ad. <laughs> Click the link below guys. <laughs> um, no, I wanted to talk to you about goals and habits mm. circling back around that. This is, uh, this will probably come out in March, but I think at this point, you know, it's been a couple of months since new year's resolutions. People set all kinds of goals from making more money to learning a new language. Um, but you talk, I, one of the videos that you have is talking about kind of setting that foundation, which is really important, which is setting more thoughtful goals from the get go, right? Being more, uh, insightful around what kind of goals that you set, which can set you up for longer term success in the long run. Talk to me a little bit about like, what are some of the common mistakes people make when they make goals, whether it's for new year's resolutions or whether it's for month, their monthly goals. So I'll go over a couple of concepts and I've, I feel like actual like pointed content about goal setting is something that is a bit of a gap in my catalog. Um, I haven't talked a ton about like the smart framework or anything like that. Uh, but I have talked about a few different pieces that are very useful to goal setting. So one mm -hmm. of them is an idea that I ran across when I was, um, I think my first year of full-time work on college info geek. And it's this idea of uh, success spirals. And this comes from a book called The Motivation Hacker by a guy named Nick Winter. Uh, he started Scritter, which is like a Chinese kanji learning app. He started Code Combat, which is like a game that teaches kids how to code. So he's like, uh, you know, one of those quantified self nerds from San Francisco. And yeah. that spoke a lot to me because I was very much like that uh, back in college. And so uh, the concept there is if you're like down at level zero and you set a goal, for someone you know who was already at level 100 to do, you're probably going to fail, or you're going to stay consistent for a little while, and then you're going to fall off, and you're going to try to get right back where you were, and it's probably not going to work. So the idea mm -hmm. of success spirals is you start at the bottom and you spiral up, and you basically prove to yourself, hey, I can operate at this level for a sustained period of time. Now that I've proven that to myself, let me move up to the next level. It's just like a video game, right? All good game design 
teaches you fundamental concepts, challenges you on the concept it just taught you. And once you've proven you can get past that initial challenge, now it's going to throw another challenge at you where it might combine that concept you've mastered with something new, or it might ratchet up the difficulty a bit, but you have to get to that level first. And uh, I think a lot of uh, people make the mistake with goal setting of just picking a level that they have not proven to themselves yet they can do. Like, I'm going to read a book a week. Well, okay, did you read even one book last year? No, maybe challenge yourself to read like a book every couple of months or just challenge yourself to do an input-based goal where it's like, I'm going to read um, for an hour a day or I'm just going to read 20 pages a day or something like that. So that's one useful concept. Uh, input versus output is also a very useful concept. Um, and that's also quite detailed in the Motivation Hacker. So I would recommend people read it. Uh, but one thing I liked is... Um, I feel like a lot of my goal setting theory comes from that book. He used uh, a external system to basically augment his self-discipline. It's called B-Minder. You can literally basically bet money that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And then he had set up multiple different goals, uh, but some of them were input-based and some of them were output-based. So I want to say like he went crazy and bet half of his net worth, which at the time was $15,000. So he bet $7,000 on an input-based goal of I will write, say, uh, 200 words a day or something like that to finish my book. So the money wasn't bet on, I will finish and publish the book. It was bet on, I will write 200 words a day and that you can easily quantify and track and you can use automated systems to hook up to be under, uh, it could be like an RSS feed or something like that. Yeah. It, and then there was so another one just, that was, oh, go just, ahead. Just start, start to interrupt, but um, can you elaborate what you mean by input versus output goals? Yeah, so, so um, you know, if, if I say my goal is to uh, squat 400 pounds, that's output based. If I say my goal is to get to the gym and do um, three sets of squats three times a week, it's input based. There is not a specific criteria I have to meet in order to achieve the goal. Um, instead, I have, well, I guess there is specific criteria, but there's not like a, a thing I have to do that isn't guaranteed. It's more just like, I'm going to go in and put in the reps and that itself is the goal. And the outcome is a reward, but the outcome is not the goal. And then mm. output base is the exact opposite. The outcome is what you're shooting for. And that is the goal. So, you know, get a million subscribers on YouTube is output based. Uh, make 100 videos over two years is input based. I mean, I guess Got it would it. be output based too, but it's like, I sure. know I could, this, I'm putting in these reps. My goal is to put in the reps. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your recommendation is to have a combination of both. It shouldn't be just output. It shouldn't be just input. Uh, I guess input is somewhat like systems, right? Like there's a system that you mm -hmm. have on a weekly basis. If you want to lose weight, you fast for X number of days or lift certain number of weights. Is that kind of the idea? And you, you, you recommend people to have both? My recommendation is to ex uh, experiment with what works best for you and realize that input-based might work in certain areas and then output-based might work in other areas. Mm. So I find often if I'm hyper-interested in something, I don't even need to think about goal setting because I just want a thing to exist in the world and that's totally fine. But in certain other periods of my life or certain other projects, I have found that an input-based uh, goal works much better. For example, the book was very much input-based. My goal mm. wasn't finish the book by X date or anything like that. I literally had a habit in my habit tracker system just, just said 500 words per day. And that was it. And the interesting yeah, thing is I pick a sub bullet from my outline 
And I'd say, okay, let's write 500 words on this. And most days I would end up writing a lot more because the 500 goal would get me into that working frame of mind. I kind of call it uh, getting into the mines. You're never going to find the jewels at the beginning of a mine. You have to move a lot of dirt and move into the, the deep parts to find it. So you get yourself into the mines and then now you're in the state of mind to keep going. And I'd often output 1500, 2000 words in a day doing that. Mm. Yeah, it's, I think uh, there's a book around it called uh, Tiny Habits by mm. BJ Fogg, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a common phrase, right? Like if, if you want to teach people how to floss, start with one tooth at a time. And yeah. by the time they get into that, they're going to be able to, yeah, you're already in that mindset. So I guess that's similar to what you're uh, recommending for people. Mm -hmm. Got it. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you though. Keep, keep going with what you were talking about uh, with, with B-Minder. Oh boy, did I lose my train of thought? You're looking more to something else as well. I think I went on a whole different split tangent. So. I know. Yeah, we're we're, we're doing this a lot. Um, <laughs> what, one of the interesting things that I you also talked about is uh, why we shouldn't tell people about our goals. And I'm I'm more that that like mindset, like not to share too much. But I know some people get quite motivated when they talk about their goals to other friends because it adds that social pressure of, you know, someone reminding them like, Hey, I thought you were going to do this by this date. I thought you were going to start that business or quit that job or, you know, lose this number of weight. And it keeps some people accountable. Is there similar to what you were talking about before where like for some goals, we should be publicly saying to people, or, or do you think in general, is there just more downsides of telling people everyone about their goals? This is something that I'm personally just going through right now as I talk about my goals. So there may be a slight upside, there may be a slight downside. Uh, and I will get into why this is or, or why science may think that this is. Um, but I will note that telling people about your goals is something that shifts the probability of you achieving it by a small degree, in my opinion. So something that I think a lot about is um, what's called the Bayesian way of thinking. It's based on this probability principle called Bayes' law, where you have a prior and then you have new evidence and the evidence should shift uh, the belief, the prior belief by a certain degree. So usually your prior is pretty strongly established and then new evidence would shift at a small degree. That's kind of how I think of the whole don't tell people about your goals or do tell people about your goals thing. If you feel very strongly about a goal, if you're obsessed with it, if you're motivated, then that's a pretty strong prior. And telling someone about it might shift the probability of you achieving it down a little bit, maybe up a little bit. And that comes down to who you tell and how they're going to act afterwards. Mm -hmm. So the video I made about this many years ago was called Don't Tell People About Your Goals. And it basically summarized a study that was done, which found when people tell others about goals they have, they get a little bit of satisfaction simply through saying they're going to do it. Because if I go to you and I'm like, hey, Sean, I'm going to do a marathon this year. And you're like, that's awesome. you know, And I'm going to feel good about you praising me for just committing to this goal. And so the idea is it creates what's called a social reality where your friends or peers giving you praise just uh, due to the virtue of you saying you were going to do the thing kind of gives you some of that satisfaction. It kind of creates a bit of that reality of achieving the goal in your mind. And that may make you less likely to put in the work to actually get the satisfaction of doing it. Mm. So that you was have the dopamine was a, already, already yes. that built in. 
Yeah. Got so it. that that was the result of at least one study. And I want to look into this at some point because I remember there was this thing called the replicability crisis in uh, psychological studies that happened, oh, maybe 2013 or so. Um, this group of researchers got together and they were like trying to reproduce the results of so many different psychology studies. And in many cases, they could not. Mm. Uh, so I remember one of the studies and very, very popular concepts that sort of gotten taken or got taken down through this was called ego depletion. There was like this very famous study in the early 2000s where they had people uh, who were told to resist a cookie or they could take the cookie. And then um, the ones who resisted the cookie were worse at math later on. And it's like, oh, when you... Uh, when you use your willpower to to basically reject something you want to do or to reject a short-term desire, it depletes your willpower and then you're less capable throughout the day. And so the replicability crisis basically said, ego depletion is not a real thing. Um, and it's funny because a lot of people basically took that to mean, oh, willpower is unlimited. Like the opposite mm. of the axiom is now true just because we couldn't reproduce the original idea or the original results. And I don't think that's true. I think willpower is still in some case limited just think about, you know, you get home from a long day of work. Can you get yourself to the gym as easily as when you wake up in the morning and do it right away? Personally, no. If I don't work out in the morning, I'm not going to do it. Mm. Um, so the whole don't talk about your goals thing may be a victim of the replicability. Rec rec I can't even say that word. Replicability, replicability. crisis. Yeah, it's a tough <laughs> one. It's a tongue twister. Um, but what I think is it really depends on who you tell. Because you may have some people in your life where you tell them about the goal and all they do is just praise you for it and they'll never follow up. And that's not accountability. In that case, I, I think you truly do get that social reality. You get the little dopamine release from telling your friend and getting a bit of praise and then they're never going to follow up. If you have a friend who's going to say, cool, I'm going to hold you to that or I'm putting this on my calendar one month from now, I'm going to follow up with you and make sure you did it then I think that actually shifts the probability of you achieving the goal in the positive direction. So mm. who are your friends? Who are the people you're telling about your goals? That's the question I think you should be asking. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I've heard this from a friend of mine that is such an advocate of telling people about their goals. And it's for, for, for them, the way they described it is that they want to be a person that's a man of their word or woman of their word. Mm. And when they tell their friends something, they want them to mean what they're saying, because if they don't, not only are they losing the respect of their friends slowly at a time, but they're also losing their own self-respect, right? They're saying mm -hmm. it, uh, not just to themselves, but just out loud. And if they can't accomplish those goals, then obviously it's not going to be, uh, it, you know, it could be a negative cycle loop that happens if they continue to do that. If they continue to share, it's like the boy cries wolf, right? They continue to share, but they don't do anything. And um, it, it kind of adds that extra extra flame, I guess. So it, I guess it really mm -hmm. does depend on um, on like really what motivates you. Like what you have to really understand, I guess. Like what what are, what are other things that motivate you at the end of the day? Yeah, and that sounds like an example of building up a strong identity and then letting that guide your actions. So I remember reading James Clear's book Atomic Habits, and for me, that was the most powerful idea in the book. This idea that every action you take is essentially a vote for the kind of person you want to be. Mm -hmm. So instead of setting goals that are simply based on, I want to do X first, get clear on the identity that you want to embody. Who do you want to be? And then let your goals uh, or let the actions that are part of your goals essentially vote for that identity. So what you said is uh, your friend wants to be a man of their word. 
that's an identity. That's a character trait. And I think that throws a wrinkle into what we might draw as a conclusion, like a universal conclusion of this study where you tell someone about your goal and it's going to be bad. If you embody the identity of a man who sticks to their word, someone who says they're or does what they're, they say they're going to do, then that's probably going to affect you differently than the average person who is willing to say, Hey, I'm going to do this. And then when it comes time and you know, they, they don't want to put the work in, they're just fine with it. Right. Right. It's, it's very like independent, um, result, I guess, depending on like what, yeah. what, who you, who you believe yourself to be at the end of the day. And it also matters what the goal is and what it really connects to. So last year, one of my goals was I wanted to write full documentation for notions formula feature because they didn't really do it. The formula feature has very, very short descriptions of what each function does, but there's not like something like the MDN web docs for notion formulas. I wanted to write mm -hmm. that. And when I got to the core of why I wanted to do that, because it was a four month project, I wrote 40,000 words of technical documentation. It wasn't like, oh, I think I'm going to get tons of praise for this, or I think I'm going to make a ton of money off of it. It was, I want this to exist in the world. I recognize its long-term strategic value. I realize also that there are short-term things I could do, which would make me much more money, get me much more followers. So what's the reason I'm doing this? It's because I personally find it interesting and I want this thing to exist in the world. So mm. the actions were very tightly coupled to what the goal itself was. And I think a lot of the goals we set if we're honest with ourselves, are not very tightly tied to the actions. So a lot of people say, I want to go to the gym more often next year when it's January, or whatever. The goal isn't, I want to go to the gym because I enjoy the strenuous process of lifting weights and challenging myself and getting stronger. The goal really is I want to look good naked. Hmm. And so that's not very tightly coupled to the act of getting yourself up in the morning and walking to the gym and doing a set of squats. It's like, I just wish I looked good naked. And this seems to be the way that I am going to achieve that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that may require some additional external systems of self-discipline or, or external discipline to help you get to that goal because the action doesn't give you the satisfaction uh, that you are seeking. So is that really just being more honest with yourself and being just being more mm -hmm. direct with what are the true reasons? Because it, it kind of leads me to my next question, which is, a lot of people have goals, but it's overwhelming for a lot of people to even get started, right? But it's like the sexy thing to do to set big, ambitious goals. I want to learn X number of languages in the next three years, or I want to lose a certain weight, all these things. But it's very overwhelming. Like I'm thinking about a goal for me, waking up is really hard. And it's a small thing, but like to me, it sounds overwhelming. So I guess aligned to what you were talking about, how do we get ourselves to do difficult things that may seem overwhelming, but um, are there strategies or tactics you've learned that can help people get over that mental barrier that they have? Yeah, absolutely. So there's three components that I'll share. Um, there's a whole field of research into this, but three main components, obsession, duty, and uh, I guess ease would be the third mm. one. So uh, I will go in the opposite order here because I, I want to get ease out of the door. It's very sexy to, to set a big, hairy, audacious goal. It's very sexy to tell people, hey, I'm going to go to the gym every single day this year. But if you don't do it, then it's really not that sexy, right? It's just like I said right. it and that was it. So again, start small, 
follow that success spiral concept or that game design concept where you're proving to yourself, I can overcome this challenge, not just once, but consistency. There's that idea that mastery isn't when you don't get it wrong. It's or mastery isn't when you get it right for the first time. It's where you cannot anymore get it wrong. You've mastered mm -hmm. it so that you don't even make some mistakes anymore. So if you master level one, then you go up to level two. That's using the concept of ease, or at least working within the bounds of your current capabilities, maybe reaching just beyond them, instead of expecting yourself to go up to level 100 right away. Um, obsession, I guess will be the next one. If you are hyper interested in the actions you have to take to achieve the goal, you're just going to do it. And I won't harp on a session too much because anybody who's obsessed right now isn't listening to a productivity podcast. And I think that's just what it comes down to. Like ideally, ideally, if you're, if you're consuming productivity content in the slightest, uh, your goal is to graduate from it because you eventually find something in your life that, uh, you're so stoked about that. You just want to wake up and do it all day long. And when you have that, Maybe you still need some systems that we can talk about for other things like keeping your life balanced, maybe uh, signing off of your work at 5 p.m. if you want to have a life in the evening, maybe going to the gym, whatever it is. But the thing you're obsessed with does not anymore require the productivity and motivation techniques because you just want to do it that badly. Hmm. Uh, and I've definitely experienced that. And I've also experienced the flip side where I'm sticking with something that I obviously shouldn't be doing and trying to force myself to do it because I'm lying to myself and not realizing I'm not obsessed with this. Maybe I should pivot. What uh, if there's the last a goal thing... though, that they know is good for them. Let's say like eating clean, let's say not mm -hmm. drinking alcohol, let's say, uh, working out every day or waking up early. Cause that it makes is actually something that's good for you, but you're not obsessed with it. You know, like, you know, it's yep. a good thing. It's a universal truth, but you're just not super into it. You know, is that a requirement for obsession to to, to be able to accomplish these things? No, not at all. So the, the third aspect of this I was going to talk about basically covers everything else. And mm. my word for that is duty. Uh, the more precise word is externalized augmentation of your self-discipline. And what I mean by that is you have something in the real world, be it a, uh, a goal you wrote down, be it a system that keeps you accountable, be it a coach be it people who are depending on you for their livelihoods, something in the real world that takes the, um, the mechanism for, for ensuring you comply with your goal out of your mind and makes it real. Mm. And so I, I made a video about this called the five levels of self-discipline. And I think that distills it pretty well, but I'll kind of go through those levels here. Um, they all come down to finding a way to get something built in the real world that essentially creates duty for you. So level one is the self. And that is literally just creating some sort of automated external system that keeps you on track. It could be as simple as I'm going to set a timer and I'm going to use the Pomodoro technique to get some work done for the next 25 minutes. And that works because now the stop time is no longer decided by you. It's this little time on your desk. It's like, oh, I just have to work for four, or for 25 minutes and I can be done after that. But like the timer is basically keep me on task here. That's cool. It could be as complicated as setting up Beeminder, connecting it to your Strava account and having it track how many miles you ride every day because you're trying to train for um, like a bicycle race or something like that. And it would charge you money if you didn't ride as many miles uh, during the day, as you said, you were going to, and it, mm. there's no weaseling out of it because it's literally just sending data from Strava 
to be uh, to be minder. So that's the self level, and then two through five are all uh, having to do with our connections to other people. So level two would be the friend who's actually going to keep you accountable when you tell them your goal. This isn't a um, uh, this isn't like a, an actual coaching relationship. It's not codified. It's just somebody who will hold your feet to the fire when you say, I'm going to do this. They'll follow up with you. Uh, level three would be a coach or somebody who is professionally obligated to actually track your progress, keep you motivated, keep you on task, and ideally give you feedback on what you're doing as well. Great example for that. I have a lifting coach. So he sets programming for me. I have goals. He helps me to meet those goals. And I also film my sets and I write down uh, how many reps and how many sets I did at which weights. So he can actually track my progress along with me. He can adjust mm -hmm. my next workouts based on was I able to uh, get this set done? Did I fail a rep? That kind of thing. And he's able to give me feedback like, hey, you're leaning forward too much on your squats or you're bending over too much. So that helps me to dial in my technique, avoid injuries, but also I think most importantly, uh, actually stay on task and stick to my goals. And then level four and five are much more group based. So four could be aligning your personal goal with a bigger goal of a group. This could be yeah. something like, um, you know, to use the running example, if I'm going to join like a relay race, my training is no longer just tied to my performance. It's tied to my team's performance. So I don't want to let my team down. Right. Therefore, I'm going to stick to my goal. And then that naturally leads to level five where you're now the leader. And so you are not contributing everything to the group effort, but you're at the top and everyone depends on you to set the example, to help with the planning, to set the tempo. And once you're the leader of a group, I think that puts the, the most pressure on you to actually stay disciplined with your goals. Hmm. Um, it also creates the, the, the greatest likelihood of consequences that would hurt other people if you fail. So I don't think taking on a leadership role is necessarily like a productivity hack. It's more like the logical conclusion of this model. Right, right. And I guess the harder the goal is, the more the goal seems overwhelming, the more you would want to stack these components to have it to your favor. Would that, would that be right? Or is there like the more powerful one that you recommend? I think, it's, I think it's a little fuzzier than that. I just think you should try things out. So, yeah. um, and, you know, I don't think it's like, oh, well, I'm only going to break out the ultimate weapon of joining a club because yeah, this yeah, goal yeah. is so hard. Like, you know, if it sounds fun, it sounds fun. Uh, and if your goal is like, hey, I want to get my cardio up and joining a volleyball league is definitely going to get your cardio up, like do it, but you know, just do it because it sounds fun too. Mm, yeah. The, the thing that I, um, struggle with is, and, and I'm sure a lot of people do as well is you set goals that maybe you've previously failed at so maybe that is for me let's say like right now i'm trying to gain more muscle weight and just because of you know first of all problems but this is because of uh you know high, high metabolism or whatnot it's it has been harder to continue to maintain that with travels and all that stuff so mm -hmm. when i reset these goals i'm like there's always stuff in the back of my head and at first from other people it could be starting a business it could be uh, you know, gaining muscle, all these things that they may not have succeeded at. What are some tips or advice you could give when we're setting goals or when we're trying to build these habits to accomplish these goals when they have failed before or when they're getting off track? Yeah. So everything I'm going to say here kind of stems from things we've already covered, which I think that's totally fine. Uh, there's a great line from Alex Hormozzi. We need to be reminded more than we need to be taught. So if you have failed a goal, then first you got to ask yourself, 
do I care about this goal? Mm. Have I committed to this for vanity reasons? Am I trying to impress someone else that doesn't really need to be impressed? Am I trying to keep up with somebody else or trying to keep up an image? Like really get down to the core of why you want to achieve, say, putting on more muscle mass and ask yourself, like, do I really care about this? Or am I being pushed by some sort of external factor to believe I should care about this? Um, but, you know, assuming that you do actually care about it, you're like, I really want to do this, then again, it comes down to ease and duty. If you're not obsessed, and if you failed it, you probably weren't obsessed, uh, make it easier or add more duty to the mix. So mm -hmm. for the example of putting on more muscle mass and being more consistent in the gym, this was definitely one that I struggled with for years. Uh, February, 2020, I met my lifting coach at a conference and he's like, Hey, I want to try training you. So I started working with him and over the next year and a half, I think I put on like 35 pounds of muscle and Damn. finally got that thousand pound powerlifting total. And wow. I had, I've been lifting since I was a kid. Like my dad was mm. a powerlifter. I think I started lifting when I was like nine years old. So I wasn't new to this, but for most of my life, it would be like, good habits for three months and then I fall off mm. and three months doesn't really get you a whole lot of progress. Whereas a year or two years really does. So if you do it for three months and then you fall off for six months, like you just really never see a whole lot of results. The moment yeah. I started working with Matt, it's like, I wake up, Oh, there's my programming. I've got my gym in the garage. I'm just going to go out there and do it. I'm going to send it in because he's going to ask me about it if I don't do it. And all of a sudden it's like, Whoa, I've been consistently working out three times a week for a year and a half. And whoa, I'm 35 pounds bigger and I'm way stronger. Wow. Do you think that's what it was? It was like, it wasn't necessarily that he had this magic formula. Like he wasn't like, he, he didn't have this like crazy workout technique that you didn't know about or that you haven't oh, tried yeah. before. It really just came down to accountability and doing it consistently for a long enough time. Like re reps and mileage is kind of like what Ar Arnold uh, Schwarzenegger talks about in his book. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, if you want to, if you want to put on muscle mass, you want to get strong, like the techniques are so simple. They have been scientifically proven and studied for decades. Mm. It's like you go into the gym, you bench, you overhead press, you squat, you deadlift, maybe a couple of accessories, like some pull-ups and you're, you're gonna, you're gonna build a great body. It's very mm. simple. It's a simple linear progression, like three sets of five. You're doing an A day and a B day. It's like, this has been, you know, codified in, uh, in, in kinesthesiology for years. It's yeah. not crazy. Um, it really just comes down to dialing and technique. So you don't get injured, uh, progressive overload where you're actually continuing to make the weights go up or you're, uh, shifting the rep schemes. So you're continuing to challenge your muscles and get those effective reps. And then the most mm. important thing is you just show up and you do it for a long time consistently. Dude, that's powerful. Like, have you, have you taken that logic and that success that you've had and applied it in other parts of your life? Like growing yeah. your YouTube channel or anything like that? Where, where else has that worked? hundred percent. So a couple of examples with the YouTube channel, when I got into YouTube, uh, at first it was pretty funny cause I didn't know about the YouTube algorithm. So I was just looking for a place to host my videos and I was still like, Oh, I'm a blogger. I just, I, you know, want to try some videos and I need a place to host them. And then when my seventh video took off, I realized, Oh, I want to be a YouTuber and this seems viable from mm. then on. I had this rule that I called the 1% rule. And this was to keep me out of, uh, getting into perfectionism and never publishing. 
because I, I had a couple of videos where I just kept tweaking things and trying things and like, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's not as good as this thing I'm looking at over here. I'll never publish it. So I, I broke out Beeminder and I was like, set up the RSS feed one video per week on Friday without fail, or I'm going to be charged money. And the 1% rule was each time pick something I'm interested in to get 1% better at. So it might mm. be this week, let's get um, a more dramatic lighting setup. Next week, let's learn how to keyframe in After Effects and add some easing curves so we don't have just linear motion. And if you do that for years and years and years, then every single video you made every week, you learn something new. Five years down the road, you've made hundreds of videos. You've made hundreds of little improvements to your technique. You're now an expert in so many different areas. And it didn't feel easy, but it also didn't feel like you went to this insane school or anything. It's just, you did the work, you had this amazing body of work, and that is what taught you all these techniques. Mm. Um, another example, the notion formula documentation was a daunting project. It's, I, I want to say it's like well over 70 functions and operators that I had to cover. And then there were supplemental things and there's a lot of sirens behind me. <laughs> uh, there were supplemental articles like regular expressions and error handling and all this stuff. Mm. Looking at the project from the outset, I'm like, this is massive. A team would do this. But if I break it down and I just say every day, I'm going to strive to write one article. And when I get into an article, I might understand like uh, modulus was a great example. I didn't really understand the mathematics behind modulus. And one thing I really wanted to do in my documentation was not just show you how to use an operator, but show you what you're actually doing. So my modulus uh, article actually teaches remainder and modulus and the difference between them. I basically had to give myself a math class of, on that day, reading through articles, understanding modulus. But by the end of the day, the article was done. Mm. And you just show up at the coffee shop and you do an article a day and four months down the line, boom, you have full technical documentation and you've learned all these things. And, uh, you know, at the outset, it seemed daunting, but you just put in the effort and it's done. Yeah. Explain, talk a little bit more about that 1% rule. Cause I, uh, I I've learned about that and it's, it, it is very powerful because I think like humans in general, we're, we're designed to think linearly, like the idea of exponential progress is just not the way humans have evolved to think. And this is kind of the advent of technology and AI. Like people don't know how powerful these things similar with investing, like compound interest. Uh, I think Warren Buffett calls compound interest like the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, but you're now applying this to personal growth habits, you know, systems. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that and um, why it's so powerful. Yeah. So the, the idea of the exponential growth often gets pushed back on. Uh, and so my, my 1% rule was something that I came up with back in 2014 for myself. Uh, but it often gets very compared to the, the idea that James Clear puts forth in atomic habits where he has that graph and it's like, you know, if you make a 1% improvement every day over 365 days, you have like this exponential curve going up. Mm. Whereas if you make a 1%, uh, disimprovement <laughs> or 1%, right, right, right. you know, getting worse every day, like yeah. it just, you know, similarly, you just kind of spiral down over time. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of people will be like, uh, that's not actually how it works. It's actually kind of the opposite where you make the noob gains 
to go back to like the weightlifting example, your first couple of years, you're putting five pounds extra on the bar every workout. And then, uh, you know, 20 years into your powerlifting journey, you have to go to hell and back to add like one additional gram to your deadlift because you're already deadlifting 800 pounds. Like, yeah, obviously that is not exponential growth. However, what I have noticed is there is at least non-linear positive growth uh, in the results that come from the effort. So Mm. as a filmmaker, as a YouTuber, I would not say that my technique has grown exponentially in terms of what I can do. Um, There were very much noob gains there where, you know, when you learn how to to keyframe non-linearly and you add easing curves, that adds a lot to your videos. Whereas, Mm. you know, something like adding particles uh, later on is going to be more like uh, a finishing flourish. You know, it, it definitely is cool, but it doesn't add as much to the overall experience as something as fundamental as nonlinear motion. However, the results that I personally have experienced through applying the 1% rule, continuing to learn while building a body of work, while building a lot of connections and friendships and deepening those connections over the years, my results have been nonlinear in a positive direction. Mm. Um, And I I did a whole wrap up uh, thread last year just to pick income as one metric our income has been nonlinear in the positive direction. I don't know about exponential, but you know, 1.4 million in revenue last year versus I think 700,000 the year before, that's a yeah, doubling, that's... whereas we didn't see a doubling before that. Um, so that's what happens when you continue to scale up because you get into the mm. upper echelons of skill, you start meeting other people who are also in those upper echelons and the opportunities that unlocks uh, combined with your previous body of work with the audience you've already built it brings bigger and bigger rewards over time. Mm. What is that for you right now? What is that 1% thing that you're mentally focusing on? JavaScript. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what it is. So my goal over the last few years, when I I started Thomas Frank Explains, my second channel, uh, my goal was I want to create a niche channel all about Notion. And I'm a big proponent of free information. So I wanted to create like a vertical end to end resource for anybody who wants to learn notion vertical, Mm. meaning, uh, from the basics of creating a brand new page and learning a little bit of markdown to the higher end of literally building your own apps using the notion API. And I realized to do that, to realize that goal, I have to learn JavaScript because I don't know it, (laughs) you know, the, the notion Mm. API, uh, generally uses JavaScript and Node.js to do things. So I have to learn JavaScript. I have to learn Node.js. I have to learn how to work with APIs so I can go teach it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so right now I'm in that phase of my goal where I've kind of covered most of the basics, I've covered formulas, uh, covered data- databases. Now I've got API stuff to cover. So it's like, mm-hmm. cool, push yourself to learn more JavaScript, Tom. Well, why not bring someone else? And, uh, you know, from part from that mindset of like scaling your business, of bringing on so that the business isn't entirely dependent on yourself. So that comes down to my motivation. Um, the, the pithy answer I've given to other people who ask me what I want to be when I grow up is I want to be a rich academic. Mm. And what that means is I'm relatively uninterested in scaling the business to as high as it can go. I'm uninterested in being a billionaire. I would never, it just sounds like too much of a hassle, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah you know, I think you then. can make $10 million and pretty much buy anything you want for the rest of your life and be set. Yeah. So, you know, let's 10 million sounds like a decent uh, goal for me financially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what really motivates me 
Um, and if I were to, to describe the ideal gameplay loop that I go through for the rest of my life, it is I get to get into something technical that's interesting to me, that's really challenging to learn. I get to sink my teeth into it, go into the cave, build something out of a box of scraps, and then I get to come out and I get to be Tony Stark on the stage presenting what I built. Mm. And then I go back into the cave and do that over and over again. That's what makes me happy. So while I do realize I could build a whole team, I could great, I could get a great technical writer who knows JavaScript, who could make API tutorials for me. The, the fact is I want to know it. Yeah. yeah. So no, if fair, I have man. the interest, I 100% believe I can go out there and learn anything that I need to learn. Uh, and if I have the freedom to do that, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And, and kudos to you just for being self-aware enough to know what you want out of life and this business that you're building. I think a lot of people immediately think scale, but mm -hmm. they don't really think about the secondary or the third consequences of, of doing that, which is more people, more problems, more therapy sessions that you may have to do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> At least you can afford the therapy. That's true. That's true. You can expense it. But yeah. The, <laughs> the question I ask is like, you know, pu push yourself forward to, uh, to whatever the state that you're looking to achieve and ask yourself, what does an average day look like in that life? Mm. And, and I say, push yourself forward mentally when you're doing this exercise, because if you just say, what do I want my average day to look like now? It may push you to avoid the sacrifices you need to make now to get to where you want to go. So, you know, very much embrace discomfort now to get to where you want to go. But if you're like, that's my North star, that's what I want to be. Ask yourself, well, once you, you know, you hold the trophy, you bite the metal, you pop the champagne, you kiss the girl, like what's your life look like after that when mm. you wake up and it's just an average Tuesday and you've made your billion dollars and you've, you've got this 10,000 person company. Like, is that what you want? Are you happy with that? Yeah. If so, cool. But if not, like, don't just be chasing the moment of glory that you experience when you hit, you know, when you get to the mountaintop, uh, be chasing the life that it gives you afterwards. Mm. Yeah, I know this reminds me of uh, this exercise. I know you've also been on Lewis's podcast and he does mm. this exercise, which is the perfect day. And he has you break down from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, what's happening on an hour to hour basis? Where, what, where, 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 where is your, like, where, where are you waking up to? Who are you with? What are you smelling when you wake up from like the most detailed process possible? And then try to reverse engineer that process for what kind of, life that you need to build for yourself and what are the actions you need to take and i think it's it's kind of brings me back to like it seems like you've already done that for yourself and uh yeah it's, it's pretty inspiring man um this is almost the perfect day <laughs> yes yes you know wake um, up, take care of my dog see my wife get, get to go on a cool podcast get to do programming later go home play magic the gathering hang out with my yes. wife some more sounds great <laughs> dude you, you've got it set up yeah yeah Lot, lots to inspire to there um, speaking of around how to structure your day, I think we can wrap up around talking about productivity and notion, uh, particularly, mm. but around productivity, you know, when it comes to setting up systems, environments and habits, what are the things that you've learned that have helped you get the most done or maximize your effectiveness or focus or productivity, uh, that, you know, you probably don't think about right now because I know for you it's probably such a second nature thing to set up your computer desk in a certain way you know have certain things but what, what are the things if you can reflect back that's really moved the needle for um yeah for helping you get more done hmm really I mean there's a lot I think it's like a life by a thousand unpaper cuts 
I don't know. Mm. I was going to use death by a thousand paper cuts, but I'm not dying from this. I'm getting yeah. more productive. So. <laughs> it's, it's many little things. Um, yeah. One that I will pinpoint on right now is having what I call a productivity system, what Tiago Forte would call a second brain, basically a system of external tools that allows you to use your brain for focus in the moment for ideation not for trying to manage your entire day or trying to make mm. sure nothing slips through the cracks. Uh, and, and the importance of this is variable. Um, I was talking with my wife last night, we were at dinner and she's like, you're going to think I'm crazy for this, but I never used a calendar in college. And I'm like, what? Wow. You just memorized your student's schedule. She's like, yeah, <laughs> I just knew where to go. I'm like, okay, uh, you, you know, you've got that, the genius of that kind, because when I she was wasn't in college, reading uh, collegeinfogeek.com, I guess she was not reading collegeinfogeek.com. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. My wife doesn't tend to watch my productivity videos. I wonder why yeah. um, I was the opposite when I got into college. Like I was, I went over the top in college. I think mm. the summer before I even started my freshman year, uh, I was like detasseling corn and I was trying to prep for college. And one thing I did was I set up Google calendar with all my class schedules. And then I thought, I wonder if the campus maintenance people thought to put the building blueprints or maps anywhere online. Hmm. And I found them, they <laughs> did. And so I was like, okay, I'm screenshotting all these building maps and I'm going to put them as links in my Google calendar. So that way on yeah. my first day of class, if I don't know where the, the room is in the building, I'll be able to pull up the map and find it, which is great. Cause yeah. I remember reading, there was like a college prep book called the naked roommate. And, uh, one of the things it was saying is like your first week of class, don't worry if you're late. Cause basically everyone is, since they don't know where the room is in the building that they're going to. And I'm like, I'm so not going to be that guy. I'm going to know yeah, where to go. Yeah. So I did that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the idea. Like, so you want to have a system of tools where when you have an idea, you got a place to put it. When you have a task, you have a place to put it. When you have an event, you have a place to put it. Um, so the, the whole like core of it is I want to externalize the information in a system I trust where I know the information is going to be. Uh, and I have four tenants for this easily captured, easily organized, easily found and easily disposed of to keep things from getting crufty. Uh, so that's kind of like my concept of, this, of a second brain, wherever you are, can you capture it very easily? Because if you can't, you're not going to do it and you're going to convince yourself. I'll just remember that one. And then you won't. Mm. So have, uh, and maybe an inbox or have an app where it's like, like drafts is a good one where you can basically set up workflows that capture anything you could think of and send it off to whatever app you use. Mm. Uh, personally, I use notion. I built a system called ultimate brain for this. Um, it's a system that I also sell for other people to use, but basically it's like all that stuff captured into one overall system and one tool. I've got task inbox, node inbox, uh, project management inbox, all that kind of stuff. So Make sure it's easy to capture. Doesn't matter which tool you use, just make sure it's easy. Make sure it's easy to organize because if everything just gets put in one pile, you're never gonna go through it. You're never gonna be able to find what you want. Uh, make sure it's easy to access things. So uh, a big concept for me there is I don't wanna have to click through too many folders to find things, or I don't wanna have so many different tools that all my information is siloed in different systems. I would prefer to have it all in one place where I can hit a, a little command on my computer and search for things mm. and then easily disposed of uh, that kind of speaks to the archival concept where once something is no longer relevant, archive it. And I like the word archive. Uh, I like the idea that you are not fully deleting something because you might need it in the future, 
but you don't really want it in the places you frequently visit. So a good example would be like in my project manager, I might have a project for like buy Christmas gifts for 2022. Well, that's no longer relevant now. So I'm going to archive that project, but I'm not going to delete it because maybe down the road, five years from now, I'm like, I don't know what to get my wife. And I might go back to one of those Christmas lists and be like, well, Mm. is there something common here? Is there something she never got? Or is there like some inspiration I can pull from something she asked about five years ago that I can use to figure out what to get her now? Like that might be useful. So archive your stuff, don't delete it. But again, get it out of those frequently visited places in your second Mm. brain. What are some other tools that you've used or apps that uh, has just been really, you know, well, just helpful in general around productivity or, or maybe even just around making your life better? If you can just think about mm. tools, because I agree, tools are really one of the most important things that we have in our generation that we didn't really have access to before in terms of automation and all that. Uh, are there anything that you can think about? I'll just go with the ones that I'm using right now, just stuff that comes top of mind. So, you know, take yeah. these for what they are and maybe not the best tools I use, but they're just, I'm thinking about them right now. Uh, there's one called Raycast, which is a cool little Mac app uh, where it, it's like spotlight. You can just hit like command space, bring up a little bar, but then has like tons of extensions. So hmm. I like it for window management. It's super easy for like setting something to the right or the left side of the screen or pausing Spotify or Googling things. Um, just like a, it basically just removes friction for doing all kinds of stuff on the computer, which is very nice. Yeah. Uh, I will say chat GPT has been actually a very, very useful addition to my workflow. So mm. what I've been doing a lot recently is a lot of programming, a lot of building notion API tutorials. And a lot of times I will hit things that I thought I coded correctly, but there was some sort of error and the error message in the console isn't really giving me a whole lot of context. So in the past, I would go try to find like Stack Overflow threads or whatever it is, or I dig through documentation and just like try to force myself to understand it, looking at examples. Now I can copy my code, I can throw it in the chat GPT and I can be like, hey, what's wrong with this? And yeah, it's kind of amazing that like it, it will it's tell insane. me here's the error and here's why it's the error. So it's nice. like, this is what's called an immediately invoked function. And the, the reason it's not working is you need to have these two parentheses at the end before your semicolon. Otherwise, it's not going to be invoked. Like, oh, okay. It just taught wow. me something and yeah. debugged my code. So that's pretty useful too. That's wild. I mean, when you think about, because you're obviously, you're, you're a proponent of Notion. Notion AI recently came out. And obviously, mm-hmm. you're using all of these tools. And it's you know, talking about exponential growth, we're going to be seeing ChatGPT 4, ChatGPT 5. When you're thinking about productivity, when you're thinking about people in their regular daily lives, what are the skills you think that will increasingly become more important as answers are just there for us? Information is just abundant and it can summarize mm-hmm. everything for us. What do you think are the most yeah. important skills to learn? So what we're seeing is an acceleration of what already happened 20 years ago when Google came out. Um, Hmm. And I have a video that I I want everyone to watch it. It's called The Skill You're Slowly Losing, but I can talk about the concept of it here. Uh, It's the idea of being the kind of person who, when confronted with a wall, is able to break through that wall. So what I mean by that is when you're confronted with a problem and the answer isn't immediately obvious, do you immediately give up mentally on solving that problem and go to Google or, or now go to ChatGPT and just ask it to solve it for you? Or do you have that innate ability to push through 
and go through the sometimes painful mental work of solving that problem. Because I think the people who are going to be most successful in the world that we are currently building for what, for better or for worse are people who have the hybrid skill set of being adept with these new tools. I think you have to be adept with using AI tools. You're going to have to, it's just, it's what's mm. coming. Just like, uh, you know, being good at Googling is a very, very useful skill in today's economy. Right. People who can't do it are at a disadvantage, but uh, on the flip side, you need to remain able to push through roadblocks and solve problems on your own and creatively solve problems and be mm. able to pull from many disparate areas of discipline and different topics to come up with new solutions. Because I think, you know, if you, if you don't want to be like somebody just working a menial job, then more and more, it's going to be all about being able to creatively solve problems and push through the roadblocks, um, that our automation tech can't solve. Hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's so interesting to like think about skills that even in our early teens that we were probably good at, you know, you had to be great at memorizing numbers, right? Because mm -hmm. we don't, we didn't have Facebook or WhatsApp or any of these things. So like you had, I was so good at like memorizing 10 digit numbers, or I would be, you know, good at like doing math in my own head. I can't do any of that stuff anymore. Like if somebody told me 10 <laughs> digits, I'm like, what? Dude, just like send me a message on Instagram, you know, like that skill set is gone. And hopefully it's yep. like replaced with something else, like asking better questions and all that stuff. But it, it's mm -hmm. so, it, it's so fascinating to think about like, what are the skill sets that we're going to be using less of that probably is just not going to be as useful because of these tools. But what are the skills that yep. we have to be like super prepared for in order to thrive in this generation? So I, I guess you, you nailed that on the, on the spot. And it's, it's tough to say, right? Cause we only have 24 hours in the day. We only have so yeah. many skills we can really keep fresh. So it, it's hard to say what is the combination of what we might call old skills that are mm. useful to hang on to. And, and what's the combination of new skills and new tools that we want to really invest in becoming adept at. Um, yeah. I don't think I have a perfect answer for that, but I do think that there's a lot of basic fundamental knowledge that it would be, it would be a pity to lose. Mm. Um, you know, say, whatever the the cloud web services for chat gpt goes down for whatever reason for a day like yeah do you know <laughs> how to purify water if your water <laughs> yeah. source is tainted like do you know right. all these things like it might be useful yeah. to know those things yourself even though you do know 99 percent of the time i can just go ask the ai god to tell me how to do it <laughs> yeah yeah good thing google's got barred now <laughs> which is apparently <laughs> yeah, not i'll go great, ask bard i'll go ask bard yeah <laughs> Awesome, man. Well, dude, it was such a such a fun conversation that that uh, that we've had, and, and thanks for sharing all of your insights, all of your knowledge. Uh, where can people learn more about you? Where should we point people to? Uh, I know you've got your Notion AI, um, the crazy modules that you've got there, but uh, any, <laughs> anything else that people should learn more about you on? Someday there will be a Thomas Frank bot, and people can just go ask that questions. Maybe I'll just link Pretty to that soon. in the future. Couple I, I want to train a bot on me. I just need to figure out like how to do it and how to deter people from deep faking me. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> thomasjfrank.com is where you can go to find out all the stuff I got going on. And then uh, if you're on Twitter, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Tom Frankly over there. Beauty, beauty. All right, man. Well, such a pleasure having you on here and hopefully we can get you back for round two. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. All righty.